Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Before we get started, I just wanted to check that your notifications are off. You should be good. everyone, thanks for coming to us here. This is Reppin, and I'm Evelyn, your host. Reppin is about representation of all kinds, race, gender, orientation, all the way to ideas, beliefs, values, and truths. It's another way of asking, who are you, and what do you show up and fight for? Regardless of where you're from, we all have things in common. We want love, to belong, and society has benchmarks for all of us where we should be at certain points in our lives, what we should look like, to what we should have. So living authentically is a journey that's not easy for anyone. And it's something we have to decide to work towards and practice. Now, imagine having all of that to contend with and also having to hide who you are, from the clothes you wear to the bathroom you're going to use, because you realized you don't identify in the body that you were born in. My next guest is a transgender activist and model. He's most known for being the first transgender man on the cover of Men's Health magazine. And you've seen him on the Ellen DeGeneres show. At 22 years old, an age where we're all trying to make our way in the world, my next guest was transitioning from female to male. He launched his YouTube channel where he documented his experiences and has since created content that would help others in the same situation. In 2016, he launched pointofpride.org, a nonprofit which helps transgender individuals around the world through programming and funding to help trans people live more authentically in their bodies. Today, he details how he navigated and survived his personal struggles, fear, to finding happiness and what it took to truly celebrate his life and who he is. My guest today is Aiden Dowling. Aiden, thank you so much for being here and for for coming on and, and talking with me. Give us a little formal introduction. Well, thanks for having me on first. Most people know me from documenting my transition from female to male online through YouTube. That's kind of where I got my start. That's where people know me from. Past that would be just being a transgender advocate by being on the Ellen DeGeneres show and being the first transgender man on the cover of Men's Health magazine. I know you grew up in Long Island, correct? In in the burbs of New York. The burbs. Yes, I grew up in Long Island, New York, Suffolk County. I lived there till I was 22 years old. Listen, I grew up in the burbs in New York, too. Now, I can say that the burbs are very different than growing up in the actual city itself. Would you agree? Correct. 
when you were growing up, what was that like for you? And when did you start to realize that, you know, you were born female and that wasn't something that was really you? You didn't feel comfortable. For me, I was raised like any other girl, dresses on Sundays for church type of thing. But I was always labeled as a tomboy. And I grew up very like pretty middle class. My mom was a single mom. She worked a lot. I have two older brothers and my father was in my life, but he had split custody. So I didn't see him as often. In about fifth grade is when I really noticed I was different. So having two older brothers, I was just always horsing around, always playing with all the boys and girls, right? Like I was just playing with everybody. And I don't think as a girl growing up, you're not quite forced into stereotypes quite yet. Like I had to wear the dress on Sunday, but then when I got home from church, like I just put on my regular clothes and I got to go play with the boys. Being raised by a single mom, it's like, as long as I wasn't like need going to the ER or like in immediate danger, I was good. Right. It didn't matter what I was playing with or who or whatever. As long as you had your 10 fingers and toes, you were fine. Exactly. I'm fine. Exactly. Understood. Like, Understood. Exactly. So in fifth grade is when I really noticed I was just a little different. I just gravitated more towards boys stuff, stereotypical things. I had this one instance in fifth grade where I really noticed that I was different I was different than the boys and I was different than the girls. I wasn't either one in the sense that my teacher asked us all to, like she said, okay, all the boys grab the chairs and bring them to the other room because we're going to have two classes joined together and we're going to watch a movie. I don't know if you like ever remember doing that, like they roll in the TV, you know. Yeah, uh, I remember that. I was all about it. <laughs> we were just like, what movie are we watching? This is awesome. I know. This is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was like the first time I got sent to the principal's office because I really combated the teacher because I wanted to bring the chairs into the other room. And so I was like, you know, like not only boys can lift a chair. And so I, I lifted the chair and I said, see, I can lift the chair. And that was considered like back talk. So I got sent to the principal's office and the principal I remember was like, not really sure why I was there. Didn't see it as a big deal. Um, but clearly it was the first time I was I was combating the gender stereotype that was put on me as a girl being like, oh, you're delicate and fragile. So, and boys are, are rough and tough. So the boys will carry the chairs and the girls will just form a line and enter into the room. That was kind of the first, the first moment that I knew I was different because other people told me, right? Like not necessarily the first time I felt outcast, but it was like, oh, wait a second. Like the way I'm thinking is different than the way everyone around me is thinking. And what was that like for you when that moment hit? Because I think that those years were obviously still very, very important and they're st you're still growing. You said fifth grade, right? Correct. So when you were kind of realizing that you were thinking differently, how did that hit you? I just remember being like, I wanted to prove something because I was being told that girls like can't lift chairs and bring them into other rooms, right? And, and, I, and so I was just like, well, I'm going to show you that I can lift a chair and then I could bring it into all the rooms, you know, like that was really my only thing that was going through my mind at that time was to, was that these teachers who are supposed to teach me how the world works was telling me something that I inherently knew was not correct, which was that girls were unable to do the same things that boys were able to do. Okay, I completely hear you, but let me just challenge you a little bit. It could have been like you were a very young feminist at the time, you know? 
But here you are in fifth grade and you started to realize that you were thinking about things differently. Right. But from there, where where did it sort of really, um, where did you actually start to realize that you were, you know, you were not in the right body? Is that the right terminology, Aiden? Yeah, some people identify with not being in the right body. And I think that as as you transition, different terms and things matter differently. So that instance in fifth grade was this very clear indication that I was, as you said, like I was thinking differently. I didn't think at that time, like, I'm a boy, you should allow me to move the chair. That wasn't a thought in my mind. And I think that was because my mom and dad, you know, they did allow me to play a lot of sports. My best friend was a boy for many years. I was never talked down upon because of the actions I wanted. Like, yes, I fought my mom on dresses. Yes, I, you know, would borrow my brother's clothes. Yes, I wanted to be a ninja. Like there were all these things that I wanted to do that were very masculine. But as long as I played by the rules, which was like the dress on Sunday on this, 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 then I was kind of like let off the leash and then I could do whatever I wanted, which is one of the benefits I think as being raised a woman or a girl is in those early years, I think there's a little more leeway. But then once you hit that puberty timeline, that like 11, 12, 13 years old, you have to really shift into being a girl. And now you're not allowed to do that. You know, you can't just like wear a skirt and run around like crazy because, you know, people are looking. I feel like I never quite realized that it was my gender because what happened was I was thrown into this category that a lot of the world knew about, which was lesbian, because I had a very masculine presentation and at around personally around 13 years old and then publicly around 16 years old, I started liking girls and knew I liked girls. And like, I had a crush on my teacher when I was in elementary school, but I didn't really put the two together because again, when you're young in your mind, you don't have limitations. You don't really think, oh, well, I like my teacher and she's a girl. I think that it was so internal. And it's like, you don't think about like, I like this girl and I want to like get intimate. It's way different than when you're 16 and you're like, I like someone and I kind of want to make out with them. So here's my question. And this is this is, again, me sort of educating myself as 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 I go as well. At the time when you realized you definitely were attracted to females, how did you know that you I mean, and then you said you were a lesbian. How did you know that you're not a lesbian and you, you know, and, and you were actually still identify as male? Does that, does that question make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think what you're asking me, if you don't mind me just rephrasing, is like, at what point did you realize there was a difference between your your sexual, like your sexual orientation and your gender identity? Absolutely. Yeah. What's the differentiation? Right. So I knew that was like, I knew there was a difference once I learned about it. So once I was exposed to it. So I grew up knowing that there was gay people that existed, that there was lesbians. My mom was a nurse. She had gay friends. So it wasn't like I didn't know about the gay identity. So when I looked in the mirror and I saw a girl and everyone said, it's your birthday, baby girl, and all this girl stuff. So it was like clear that I was a girl. Like I looked in the mirror. I was being told I was a girl. And I was a girl who found out that I was sexually attracted to other girls. So when I looked around me and I saw like, you know, when I was like the internet wasn't what it is now. So when I looked around, I was like, oh, okay. So like, if I'm a girl and I like other girls, then that means I'm a lesbian. 
It was just like, oh, A and B equals C. And then I lived, like we were saying, in the burbs of New York. So it's like I saw pride happening. So I, I knew that as a lesbian, I could express myself differently than other straight identified women. When I took on the lesbian identity, it was like, great, like now I can like girls, makes sense to me, A plus B equals C. And now I can kind of, you know, being a little more butch, I identified as butch. It was like accepted. I saw other women who were masculine, who were light loving other women. And so I was like, okay, cool. Like this, this feels right at that time. It wasn't until I was actually exposed to transgender men that made me think, wait, you can do that? Like that was one of my first thoughts. I was like, whoa, 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 wait, that person used to be a girl? So once I saw that it was possible is when I actually started to think about more like, is it really my sexuality that's always been in question or is it, has it been my gender that has truly been in question my whole life? And so I had to kind of go through that process of thinking about that. Are you thinking about getting into Dungeons & Dragons? Maybe you're looking to expand your horizons as a DM or a player. If that's the case, then it's time for you to check out The Dungeon Cast, the best D&D podcast out there that helps you passively learn all about the game just by listening. Find The Dungeon Cast anywhere you get podcasts or on YouTube. Give me one moment that you had within yourself where you were grappling with it, because I'm sure it was probably very confusing and very difficult. Because I think this is a topic that I think just now we're starting to talk a little bit more about. But back in them days, <laughs> I'm going to sound like a grandma at the time, trans was not really in the, in the conversation at all. I don't even think it was in my like, realm of consciousness. Right. But then again, we were kids back then. You know, Can you tell me a little bit about an experience that you had that you were really kind of going through and it made you realize that you were trans and that this was um, where you needed to go. Right. So my navigation was very private. It was like in my room. It was looking up on Google, getting into Yahoo forums that were like private, right? I'm like dating myself, but it's true, right? It was like yeah. Yahoo yeah, yeah. forums that were private and you, you got like asked all these questions before you'd be allowed in. And so it was done very privately. So you're watching all these people do it. And so you're in the privacy of your home. And so you're like hyped up and you're like, yeah, I'm gonna do this thing. It's gonna be great. It's kind of like when you're trying on an outfit at home the day before you go out and you're like, this looks so good. Oh my God, like this is it. And then the day of you put that outfit on and you're like, what the hell was I thinking? This is terrible. Yep. I look right. Everyone's had that moment, no matter who you are. Moments, plural. Right. True, true. So I was all good. And I was like, this is great. And so I specifically remember making a Twitter account. Twitter was not popular yet. It was just starting. Um, and I made a Twitter account and I used my chosen name, Aiden. I don't know what I was thinking, but someone within like 24 hours, because I was like, I'm going to try this on. I'm going to see, like, I'm going to dabble and, and see what it would be like to being a man and like identifying as a man and using the pronouns he and, and interacting with people because I wanted to make sure it was something I wanted to like really felt good about. So you were kind of testing the waters at this point. Right. But you were still in your female. Right. I was still identifying outside of my four walls <laughs> um, as a lesbian. Okay. And someone added me or something like that. 
I got another form of communication that was like, who's Aiden? Like, what is this you? Like asking me if I was, you know, messaging me like, what, why is your name spelt like this? Or like, what's going on? Clearly one of my friends or somebody, I can't remember who it was, you know, messaged me and was like, what's going on with your name? And it was like, oh, wait a second. People are finding out about this. I no longer have that privacy. So I remember deleting the Twitter account and being really nervous about it. And at that same time, I had created a YouTube channel and I hadn't posted anything, but I had created a YouTube channel called Alliance Fear because I love lions and I identified with lions and I had a big fear of transitioning and what my life would be like because I didn't, I was, I didn't have exposure to a positive framework of being a transgender man in the world. This and was what, in the, in the, what years, what decade was this around? This was in 2000 and this was late 2008, early 2009. Yeah. I just wanted to put it in context. Okay. So you had this YouTube. Right. I deleted it after that because I, I just was like, I can't do this. Like I couldn't even go, you know, 24 hours without someone asking me about what's going on. I just remember never responding back to that tweet and deleting it. So I deleted that YouTube channel and I remember sitting in my room and I'm just like crying and I'm looking around my room and, you know, like my room is this cultivation of the last like 10 years of living at that house. My mom's got like baby doll stuff for me and like very lots of girly stuff, right? Like white wicker cabinet and stuff like that, right? And so I remember like just breaking down and like looking around my room and seeing all of these girl things and then looking at my personal stuff, like my clothes, my hats, the things I have purchased and not the things that were given to me throughout my life. And it was like, everything that was mine was, it was all boy stuff. And everything that was put onto me was all girl stuff. It was this moment of realization that I can't do this anymore that room was a metaphor for my life. Like I internally, when I looked at, at myself was a guy, but externally, when the world looked into me and looked at me, all they saw was a girl. And so it was this real breakthrough moment of just like, I, I just can't do this anymore. If I continue this way, I won't make it. It was kind of like, okay, I could be dead by my own free will, or I can be dead to everybody I love because they don't love me. And at least I had have some possibility of living a happy life, even if nobody wanted to be in my life that was currently in my life. That is some really heavy and powerful experiences. Before you got to that moment where you looked at the room and you decided, I need to kind of make the change so I have a chance to at least, you know, survive and to be happier. Can you talk about the, the, the struggle of what that was like and where you got the, I got internal the courage truly to pick up and to make this change. Because I think society for all of us, regardless of if we're talking about ethnicity, race, even jobs, we all have an expectation that the world puts on us that things that we should have at a certain age, right? right? And there's these societal pressures and expectations. I can't imagine what it was like for you to have all of those regular expectations, but also have this additional internal struggle of like not feeling comfortable in your body. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what that was like and what gave you 
the grit to pick up and make the change that was right for you, despite what society told us what was appropriate. So, and I think there's a few things that come up. So the first thought that comes up is like, I went to Catholic school for a period of my life from sixth to 10th grade. And in that, that's, which is really those real formative years, right? Very, yes. And I went to Catholic school, so I had to wear a uniform, which was a skirt and like a little blazer looking thing. Going to Catholic school and being forced to wear this uniform really taught me how to dress up, so to speak. It taught me how to cover things up and being forced to wear these clothes every single day that don't represent even an ounce of who you are really taught me how to cover things up. If you just look the part, you can get through and that's fine. And then I also, I developed mechanisms that would numb me in different ways. You know, I self-harmed, so I became a cutter for many years. And that was another way to numb some of the pain. And then as I got a little older, like 16, 17, where you were a little more free, but you still had the confinements of like having to go to school and like think about college and all these things. Like I smoked a lot of weed. Like I would go out with my friends and we would smoke weed and I, when you're high, you're just like, whatever, fuck everybody. Like, I'm just going to live my life. Like you go hang out with your friends in the woods of, you know, you're like, you're just, you're in your own world. And so you're escaping, you're running away. Exactly. Exactly. So those were some of the mechanisms that I created for myself and took on so I could just be numb for a part of my day. Pretty much every day was just like, how can I maneuver through the day and use the mechanisms in which I have cultivated for myself to survive the thoughts, the confusion, and and the feelings of, of not belonging. You talked about, you know, testing the waters a little bit by just creating a Twitter account. Right. And then someone somehow discovered you within 24 hours. You got freaked out. How do you go from being in such a dark place of, you know, grappling with this huge understanding that you needed to make that transition to being male, um, having a Twitter account, being freaked out, and then going to doing a YouTube and documenting that? Because that's a huge jump. So how do you go from struggling with this privately to going on YouTube and like putting this on blast? Right. (laughs) Well, I think there's like, so there's two different ways in which I think people uh, tend to, as you're kind of describing, like flip, go from one to the other, right? And I think one of those ways, which is not the way I did it, but one of those ways is like gradual. Like some people like acknowledge their pain and they go to therapy and they, they start to heal and they surround themselves with people who support them, right? And over time, they are different. I think there's another way that a lot of people change. And that's kind of like you get to the end of the road. You've been upset or sad or depressed for so many years. Or you've, you know, created mechanisms that are self-harming, whatever that might be, drugs, or you create things that help you get through. You eventually just get to the point which you're just like, whatever. I was at the point where I could die tomorrow and it would be like, okay, not a big deal. At that point when you were that depressed, it's not a big thing. It's not like, oh, all this dramatic stuff happened. It's like, oh no, like, you know, I, I, I... I thought I was going to do this thing and that didn't happen. So let's just, let's just see you later. Bye. You don't care about anything at that point. Right. You're so sad and depressed that you're numb or you've numbed yourself with these other mechanisms. Combining those two, right? You hit a breaking point where it was like, okay, well, if I 
continue the way I'm going, like I'll probably end up dead. And if I transition, could end up dead too. Or like figuratively dead in the sense that nobody would want to be my friend. I won't find partners. I'll have to hide myself because if people find out that I was born a woman and they meet me and they're my friend or my partner or whatever, they're going to think I tricked them. They're not going to love me. For me, I'll speak for myself. Like I just got to the point where it was just like, like who cares? If I'm at the edge and I'm just going to jump off anyway, like I'm just, I might as well just go out with bang. Let's just try it out. That's kind of what I did. It wasn't an overnight thing, but it had built up this desire to transition. I had known in myself and done the sitting with myself and started to express it to some friends and my partner at the time. So I had some support. I started reaching out to people online. There was a community, it was very small, but I started reaching out to them and they started supporting me. So I started to really start to believe that I could do it, like I could transition, I could live this life. I, I had many beliefs that I, I wasn't, my family wasn't gonna stick with me, that I wasn't gonna be able to be, uh, I'd have to hide pretty much every year that had ever gone on in my life up until that transitional moment. And so when I think about why did I document it, I, I still just wanted people to love me. I didn't have any friends that were trans. I didn't have a community in which that was LGBT. I just wanted to have friends. And YouTube wasn't what it is now. YouTube was this very niche thing. There was no such thing as a viral video when I started making videos. There was no such thing as people making money on YouTube. There was no such thing as a creator or an influencer. Right. The language we used on YouTube, like there was no hashtags, like you had to literally put in the code word like F2M. And like, this was back when you still use- Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And you still use like the number two, like you would do F2M. Which is code for female to male. Right. Only people who are thinking about transition are going to look up what that is. Right. You said something in another interview that broke my heart. You said at the time- and again, I'm putting this in context, this was years ago, you had no language to even express how you f were feeling and that your body was a prison. I can't even imagine what that was like. So once you made this transition, you started making this transition, how are you feeling when you were going through it? And I don't mean like, you know, my whatever hurt physically. In terms of embracing truly who you are, you went from being in a dark, very dark place, not feeling belonging or acceptance, which is something that we all want, to living authentically and running towards actually who you are. How did it feel when you were actually going through the process of becoming a man? I, I kind of like have been using this new metaphor that feels really good about explaining what it is to, for me at least, to like transition and to like step into that moment. It's like when you're waiting online and you're at a theme park and there's like a dope roller coaster you want to go on and the line is like two and a half hours long for this like literally 12 second roller coaster ride at first you get online and you accept okay this could be a while okay i get it but then you start to get like halfway through the line and you're like come on like when is this gonna happen 
I've been online for an hour and a half already. Then you start to get a little closer. and You're like starting to count to see how many more runs are going to go before you can go on. And I feel like that's what transition was for me. Like at first, you saw the ride from afar and you're like, oh, that looks cool. And then you get up close and you're like, whoa, I definitely want to go on that ride. But it's okay. I'm going to wait my turn. Then you start to get closer and you start to get more excited. And then you start really just revving up and you're like, you're the next to go. You're just so excited. But at the same time, you're absolutely terrified because what are roller coasters? They flip you over. Oh my gosh, like if you're not put in right, you're just going to die. You're just going to like fly off. Right, right. You're so scared, but you're so excited at the exact same time. And so that's really what transition was for me. The fear came from the projection of society onto me and what people would think of me. And the excitement was that I knew that I was getting to who I was. Like I knew that when I feel physically like myself, all I wanted to do was just be a guy and like have a a wife and have a kid and live in a house and have a job. I just wanted to blend into society and, and almost like just almost disappear and just be another dude. And that wasn't even possible for you even when you were born a a, a woman, a girl, right? Because all the things that you were experiencing, being born female, but identifying as a male, day-to-day things that cisgendered people never really have to register, like, you know, picking which bathroom to go to. Things like that was a constant reminder to you of the confusion and the struggle to now Mm -hmm. just being, just being, without thinking. And that freedom, that liberation that you must have felt, can you sort of paint what sort of that the dichotomy of the two are? Society really has us all living a life that's very gendered. Espanol is a really great example, like every word is gendered, right? And you have to change the gender. I can talk about a cup. And like this cup either has an O or an A and the O is male and the A is female. And that's it, right? It's very gendered. I don't think people who feel, who are born a female, who feel female, really think about all of the ways in which every- Never thought it. Yeah, every single action you take is is really based on your gender. And people will argue this, but the truth is that it's true. Walk into any situation, like who's holding the door open? Who's presenting the meal? Who's cleaning up the meal? You know, when you're at a four-way stop sign and you're- a female identified person, also known as a cisgender person, is at the stop sign and you see another guy, like, I remember distinctly thinking like, okay, I get to go next. Because as a girl, I go first. Like, that's how it goes. I never thought about that. Yeah. So it's just all these little things. I mean, even when we talk about what are you going to get at the restaurant, it's like, oh, well, like I'm a guy, so I got to get something with meat in it because that's what guys do, right? And if I'm going to get a salad, I need to explain like, oh, well, I'm getting a salad because, you know, I put on a couple pounds and trying to lose. You have to like explain your way into a salad because salads are made for women because women are supposed to be small and and delicate and men are supposed to be strong and thick and that's why I eat meat. Every single action that we take is very much gendered. Now luckily in the last 50 years like the women's movement has continued on and I think I think having a strong mom in my presence allowed me to be, I'm going to do whatever I want because I saw my mom do that. I saw my mom have these jobs of a high position. She was an EMT, an RN. 
So I had that strong female figure in my life. So I think that also very much helped me make choices that maybe some other trans men, when they were identifying as female, had more difficulty making. Going from all of those very difficult, and that's probably the understatement of the century, experiences, can we talk about all the magazine coverage that you've graced? I mean, you were the first trans man, right, to be on couple different things. So set me straight. Did you get on Men's Health or it was a special collector's edition or you didn't get on the cover? Which which was it? Because I read both. Right. So I got on the cover of the special collector's edition, which was also put on stands. So what they did that year was they put all of the contestants on the cover, but then they also had a winner. They kind of like split. It was like 50% of them was with the winner and 50% was with the guy, with all the guys. I appreciate Men's Health for what they do. I appreciate Rodell, who owns Men's Health, for having those conversations that were very difficult to have at that time, especially. And I also feel like it was kind of a cop out to just like be able to say like, oh, but we put him on the cover without actually putting me on the cover. But you were definitely in the running. Yeah. And you definitely opened a lot of doors, so much so where there was another guest of mine, Benjamin Melzer in Germany, who is a model. Right. Saw your story and was like, shit, well, if he can do it, I can do it too. And he's trans as well. Can you share a moment? And I'm sure you have many where someone came up to you and said something that really was the moment where you realized what you did for yourself helped and made an impact on others. A lot of people would think, wow, you must just feel so great when someone comes up to you and says, you changed their whole life, you saved their life. Because like many people have told me that they wouldn't be here without my videos. It's really humbling and a beautiful thing. And it's also, you know, it's really difficult to take on that responsibility of being responsible for another person's life because I battle that feeling because it's like, I didn't do anything. I didn't go into their bedroom when they were watching my videos and pat them on the back and give them a hug and say, you can do it, dude. All I did was share my own story. I just tried to give another, an example of what someone else's life could look like. I want to give some of that power back to that person who thinks that I'm the one who saved their life because I didn't. I didn't save their life. Like they chose to save their own life. Like they, they watched my stuff and was exposed to something that allowed, that triggered something within themselves that they wanted to live. And I respect that vantage point, but I'll also challenge you and say to you that saving someone's life doesn't mean, mean that you have to be in their bedroom conducting CPR. <laughs> right. Okay. If you're there to do that, great. That's great. A little creepy right. if you're in my bedroom. <laughs> Better but- be invited in. <laughs> right. Definitely. But making an impact on someone's life sometimes can be about having the, the strength to, to share your story and step into the light when there was a time when there was no light. What you have done just by, by being open and being willing to put yourself out on the line with your own story, that is really a lifeline. How are you using your platform? And I know you're doing so many things incredible things for the community. I know that you have a clothing company called 0.5cc that you um, donate a part of your proceeds to, to helping trans, I think, with surgeries. Is, is that correct? Yeah, it goes to the nonprofit Point of Pride. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that and why that was important for you to do. My nonprofit, org 
is a branch off of the clothing company I started in 2012. And I started that clothing company to obtain top surgery, which is the removal of breast tissue to have a more masculinized chest. And so I sold t-shirts that I hand screen printed in my living room to the community and supporters, and they bought them and I was able to obtain my surgery. And this was $5,900 in 2012. I felt embedded to the community. When I say that I started YouTube because I wanted friends and I wanted a community, that's not bullshit. I wanted to belong somewhere. I never fully felt like I belonged anywhere. And I, I wanted to feel loved and I wanted to feel accepted for who I was. And the trans community gave that to me. So many people coming out as trans was this time that I was good. They were going to hide away and reemerge. And, and I saw so many gay people and lesbians being so proud of who they were. And all I saw was trans people trying to cover up who they've ever been. And for me, identifying as trans and finding this identity saved my life, no doubts about it. And so I want to help and forever help the trans community and trans people and non-binary people to live. That's all I want them to do, because that's all we want to do. We just want to live. That's why me and my friend Jeff decided to start Point of Pride, which was where we were putting money. I was putting up all the money I made from Point Five CC went back into the community. And so we started a nonprofit. And five years later, you know, we've given just under $200,000 directly to surgeons. We've helped 12 different trans women get electrolysis. We've given out over uh, 6,000 binders internationally, including countries where it's illegal to be LGBTQ. Um, so so that's, that's like my drive and passion is to help the community. And being a nonprofit is a way to do that. It's a way to bring in other people. And just it's just a passion that was luckily enough to be shared by other people. And now we can all help change the lives of trans people. You had said earlier that all you wanted to do was live and have and belong and to have a family. Tell us a little bit about where you are now and what you celebrate about you and your life. So where I am right now, my wife Jenny Lee and I have been together for 10 years and we have a son who's just shy of two years old. I celebrate the fact that like I get to wake up every day and continuously choose how I want to live my life. I celebrate the fact that being, as you said, you know, being open and not knowing where I was like, not knowing that what I was doing was going to be so impactful. Now I'm like intentionally try to be somewhat impactful. Now I know that I have the responsibility of being a positive role model and an activist and releasing, you know, what it is to be a man and what masculinity represents. And I still struggle celebrating myself. I still struggle like, you know, really uh, self-acceptance, which has something to do with being trans, right? It's just like, no, it's just being, being human. human. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. But I, I really think that my celebrations come in the sense of being able to live a life that I, I truly love thinking about the future of that life and, and the future of the community. And I think I'm, I'm one of the few people in the world that can really picture a world in which gender is not such a talking point that, that we all just live how we want to live. And it's not, determined based on, you know, what's between our legs. And so I, I really just try to live that out full, fully and whatever way that shows up. So Aiden, sign us off. Let me know who you are and what you represent. I am Aiden Dowling and I represent what others thought wasn't possible. 
I want to thank my guest, Aiden Dowling, for coming to Reppin. Be sure to follow him on social media and check out Point of Pride. Links are included in the episode description. Next up, he's a well-known and respected artist. Tattoo artist, that is. His clients include Kate Blanchett, Aerosmith's Joe Perry, Dee Dee Ramone, and the Marvel's Avengers cast. Josh Lord of Eastside Inc. is here. Hey everyone, this is Josh Lord of Eastside Inc. I'm coming to Reppin. Reppin is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. So be sure to subscribe, share, and leave a review. Also, you can reach me on Twitter at Reppin Podcast and follow me on Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. You'll see who's coming up next and get exclusive behind the scenes content. Thanks always to Nelson Pinheiro, my technical director and musical composer for all of his talent and time. And always love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.